Ask anyone in America today why our politics are so dysfunctional, and there's a good chance that partisanship will be the answer. The conventional wisdom is that Democrats and Republicans are too far apart on the issues to negotiate and compromise. The result? Nothing gets done. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. On today's episode, we are examining a counterintuitive proposal to counteract the menacing effects of partisanship. More partisanship. Why are parties so important? What is their role in our political system? And how many do we really need? These are some of the questions we are going to tackle in today's episode. I'm James Walner, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute and lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. Well, hey, guys. Hey. hey. I'm excited about today's episode. I could barely sleep last night. There's two reasons for this. I was up. I was thinking about this. Is that the idea that we need more parties is counterintuitive to many people who see parties as the problem. And you know me, I love being counterintuitive. And I think more importantly, our illustrious Lee Drutman has a new book out called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. I read it over this past weekend. It's an excellent book. I recommend it to all of our listeners. And for book lovers out there, if you hold it, it's one of those books that just feels well. It feels like you should buy it in the bookstore. Yeah, it's the right way. It feels like a good book. It certainly feels better than any of the books that I've ever written. But I, I would second that, yeah. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna change things up a bit in honor of this book coming out, and we're gonna we're gonna basically cross-examine Lee about all of the things he writes in it. But before we get there, why don't we turn it over to Lee and let you uh, kind of walk us through your argument and tell us why you're right. Yeah, well, I love parties so much that, that I think we ought to have more of them. Uh, so basically, I wrote this book trying to answer three big questions. Uh, first one is, like, how worried should we be about what's going on in American democracy right now? Second is, like, why are we having this crisis right now? And the third is, well, what should we do about it? So how worried should we be? I, I think we should be actually very worried. I think that the hyperpartisanship that people are concerned about is real. I, I think it's more about identity than it is about issues. And it's more uh, about the fact that we have two parties that are roughly equally balanced, equally competitive for control of national institutions, and yet represent completely different geographies and completely different values. Uh, we have one party, the Democrats, That's its core is in urban, cosmopolitan, multicultural, multiracial, increasingly secular America, parts of the country that are connected to the global knowledge economy. And we have another party, the Republicans, whose core is in rural and exurban uh, America, overwhelmingly white, Christian, older, more traditional, and less connected to the global knowledge economy. And we have, as those two parties are, are competing really for the soul of, of America, and both sides fear that if the other side gets into power, uh, they will be living in a country that they, they no longer recognize, that doesn't share their values. And this, this narrow competition for power uh, really uh, is a conflict with our political institutions, which demand broad compromise. It drives us all crazy because it turbocharges the us versus them thinking that is inherent in the human uh, brain. 
And it is driving this increasing political escalation of constitutional hardball, of, of no compromise politics in which both sides dig in harder and harder. And what we're losing in, in this process is the shared sense of legitimacy and fairness on which our democracy depends. If we can't even agree on how to define the truth, we are engaged in completely separate epistemological worlds. How do we agree on a fair process to resolve our disputes? I think the study of, of how democracies collapse and die, that this hyperpartisanship and extremely high stakes are a key recipe for that. So I, I am worried. Uh, the question of why now, I argue that this is actually the first time that we had had a genuine two-party democracy over the last decade or so. And I know a lot of people will say, well, haven't we always had two political parties? And uh, yeah, we have, but the political parties were these really broad, big tent catch-all parties that had incredible diversity within them. And so there was incredible overlap in the two parties. And for a long time in American democracy, the complaint was not that the parties were too far apart, but that they were too similar and voters didn't have a, a clear choice uh, for you know how to send signals, how to hold politicians accountable, uh, how to hold parties accountable because the, the parties didn't really offer distinctions. Uh, and you know a lot of that consensus uh, for for a long period of time was was based around uh, you know a refusal to deal with civil rights. The civil rights uh, revolution happened in the '60s. There was a broad realignment that took about 50, 60 years. Uh, as the parties uh, shifted and, and there was an incredible nationalization of the, the party system. And so conservative Democrats eventually went extinct. Liberal Republicans eventually went extinct. Uh, I think this interacted with our winner-take-all system of elections in dangerous ways because it meant that once Republicans fell below 40% or so in New England and on the coast, those candidates couldn't couldn't, Republicans couldn't win anymore, and Republicans basically stopped even trying to compete for those seats in the South and in rural America as Democrats fell below 45, 40%. Democrats stopped competing in those seats, and the flattening of partisan conflict into a single binary us versus them dimension meant that most people in this country stopped getting to vote in elections that actually mattered. So most people are are incredibly disenfranchised by this system because only a few uh, swing districts and swing states still exist where where parties actually compete against each other. And this has this has driven this this binary dynamic has driven uh, the country into to to two contrasting visions of American identity with no clear resolution, just further escalation ahead. And again, I, th I think the important point is that this really does not work with our political institutions that demand broad compromise. And you know, it, it drives us all crazy. So the solution to me is straightforward, which is that we just change how we vote and allow for more, more parties. I, I don't think this should be as radical a suggestion as some people make it out to be. I mean, for one, I would say that we had a multi-party democracy uh, within our two-party system for a long time. That was what made our, our our system of government work well enough. I think it would have been better if those parties were clear so voters could have sent clear signals and had clear choices. But I, I do think it's just a, a return to, to the history that, that we had before. Uh, you know, I think around the world, most democracies are multi-party proportional democracies. Now, I know there are a lot of varieties, and we can talk about the, the specific uh, version of multi-party democracy. I want something that's more modest, probably generate four to six parties. 
Uh, I'm not not saying we should become Israel, which has 17 parties in government because they use a, a hyper PR system uh, that that generates too many parties. Uh, but there are you know the system that I think we should move to is a as a ranked choice voting multi member system, which Ireland uses, Australia uses, and you know uh, additionally I, I think you know if you think back to what the framers were trying to accomplish, uh, and you know particularly Madison Federalist Number Ten is really to me a theory an argument for multi party democracy because what Madison Madison is saying is uh, there are lots of factions in society, and the way to create harmony is that no faction should ever be permanently dominant and no faction should ever be permanently dominated, and the way to do that is to have fluid coalitions. Uh, now, the framers famously didn't like political parties, but they what they were really afraid of was just two political parties because they feared that you would have a majority party that would use its power to oppress a minority party and the minority party would say this is not legitimate and and just basically revolt uh, and that was how civil wars had happened throughout history in the uh, the limited number of democracies and republics that had existed uh, now I, I think if the framers had acknowledged that political parties are necessary and, and central to modern mass democracy and had some vor- version of proportional representation been invented at the time they would have adopted something like this uh, but proportional representation wouldn't be invented until the early 19th century wouldn't be adopted in, until 1899 uh, and then spread throughout Western Europe uh, in the first two decades of the, the 20th century. And, and you know, I think we, we know from uh, proportional democracies what the advantages are. One, you, you are forced to build broad coalitions uh, because governing is about building coalitions. And the coalitions are fluid and flexible and can change over time. And parties can emerge and parties can die. It's a much more healthy competitive marketplace. Also, with a proportional system, you you get much higher voter turnout because voters everywhere can influence the election. You don't have to live in a swing district in order for your vote to count as you do in the U.S. There's no gerrymandering because gerrymandering is just a product of having single winner districts with predictable partisanship where you can generate algorithms that give you the one out of 10,000 map that is best for your party. And you know, a, a higher turnout is also a result of, of having more parties, more likely that you're going to find a party that, that appeals to you and the party's competing for every every vote because every vote actually does matter. Uh, so I, I think not only would changing the way we vote to allow for more parties break this binary hyperpartisanship, which I really think is destroying our democracy and shows no clear resolution, it would also have a lot of other benefits. So that, that's that's the most concise version of my argument. Uh, obviously, I wrote a whole book. No, it, again, I highly recommend the book to our to our listeners. There's a lot of information in there. Lee's put basically all of the facts, all of the figures, all the data that you need to know about this. It's actually quite in, impressive. But before we get into this and before we get into asking uh, Lee questions and debating this issue, I want to know where we all stand on this question of, you know, we have this dysfunction in our system. And the question is whether or not more parties will solve that, you know, if we have a multi-party democracy. And I think we kind of know where Lee is. I'm not gonna, I'm, you know, I'm gonna kind of spoil it for you. There's no surprise ending at the end of the book right. where he's like, "I love two parties," so he wants more parties. Julia, where are you on this? I'm a little bit ambivalent on this. I think more than two parties is fine. Um, I I think that the I think my my position when I opened Lee's book over the weekend was that 
some of the major problems that we have are not going to be solved by the structure of the party system. And that's where I'm going to be pushing a little bit with my question. So as usual, I'm in this sort of waffling ambivalence well, space. Since you're ambivalent, I might have to now come out in opposition just to make things interesting. Um, I'm, I, I'm like you, I am also a little bit ambivalent. I'm not sure. I agree with much of what Lee says. Uh, I sympathize with a lot of his arguments, which is starting to worry me a little bit. But I will say that uh, I'm I'm not quite sold. Let's let's put it that way. But maybe we can sell me here, and maybe he All can right. sell you. Um, but before we get into whether we need more parties, let's just first start with what political parties are. I mean, does anybody want to tackle that? I mean, what what is a party? I mean, we're not talking about you know the Sunday luncheon over at the you know at the at the Rotary Club. I mean, what is a party? So this is such a deceptively simple question, right? I, every semester, every year when I teach American political parties, I start with this question and I ask my students and they often have very different perceptions about what's important. But I think that that kind of broadly understood definition is it's a coalition of people who seek office and who have some shared goal. And that's the part of it is the shared goal um, is what kind of breaks down and there's often disagreement about to what degree is, is it just about gaining office? Is it about shared ideological predispositions? Is it about a shared set of, of policy goals? And if so, how many of those goals need to be shared in order for a party to be, I guess, to be a party, to be a responsible party as Lee discusses in some depth in this book. But the other part of that that's gotten more attention recently is the question of is the question of the nature of that coalition um so is a party is a party kind of loose conglomeration of different kinds of affiliated actors interest groups of ideological media or is it a more is it primarily composed of a more formal organization and official people who are seeking and holding office. And I don't know, I haven't totally thought through the implications of Lee's argument for this debate about parties, but I think that that's one area that we might consider. And I I would actually go a little bit more basic and contrasting parties with, say, interest groups or advocacy groups. You know, political parties are designed to influence what government does from within government, whereas interest groups are designed to influence what government does from outside of government. And not all party parts of the party are within the government, obviously, but all of their activities are all geared in some way to to nominating candidates, to winning election, to taking office and to making policy within government. So that that's really the distinction I see. But Julia, you raised an interesting point, and, and one of my concerns I want to ask Lee about now relates to the many different actions that parties engage in, in the spheres where they operate, and their many different members, because they're very overlapping and they're very divided. And we all remember from graduate school, pig pie po, right? Party and government, party and the electorate, and the party organization that really highlights the different and overlapping aspects of what parties do, the activities they engage in, and the people who are doing those things. Um, But I guess my question to Lee, well, actually, before we get to that, Lee, I want to ask you, I mean, why do we only have two parties? I mean, what's the point? I mean, why, why two? Did the clouds part and the, you know, a stone tablet comes down and it's, you know, etched on there, there shall be no more than two parties. It was not blared from the trumpets from the angels on high. Uh, We we have two parties because we have a plurality system of elections, uh, also known as first past the post, which tends to generate just two parties. Uh, most Americans, the last time I, I checked, about two thirds of Americans say they'd like to have more than two parties. But why but, do they? 
why does that first past the post system generate just two parties? Uh, it generates just two parties because third parties are seen as spoilers because there can only be one winner. Uh, rather than running one nationwide election for the House, we run 435 separate single winner elections. And in each of those elections, only one candidate can win. So if you're not the, if you're voting for the, the third place or the fourth, likely to be the third or fourth place candidate, you're essentially wasting your vote. So and to make it a little bit clearer for our listeners, if you are, say, a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican, and you're unhappy with your ticket, you could start a third party and run, but you're not going to win most likely. And the result of that would be to give the the victory to the person who you, whom you like least. That's, Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. That was a wonderful explanation. And Julia, how does the American presidency play on all this? It seems to me that it's a huge force out there. Right. So some of that is that this is a, just a huge winner-take-all contest. But as Lee pointed out, it's as with the House, it's a whole bunch of winner-take-all contests for state electoral college votes. So that also, I mean, you also have this sort of spoiler narrative that if a third party or more runs for president, that just siphons off votes for people who would otherwise prefer one of the um, one of the mainstream candidates. And so one of the arguments for that is that it not just that it's pointless for third parties to try to pursue the presidency, given the unlikelihood of winning enough votes in the Electoral College, but also that that, that produces perverse outcomes. The example of this obviously might be drawn from the 2000 election where the, there's you know a narrative in which Ralph Nader supporters, Green Party people, supposedly contributed to George W. Bush winning the presidency. And the idea would be, again, that you know Gore should have logically been the second choice of those voters if we believe in a kind of ordered ideological space. Yeah. And and moreover, because of this, you know, all, all of the energy concentrates in the two major parties. So anybody who's seriously politically ambitious is going to try to run in one of the major parties. I mean, and Trump is an example of this. He ran as a Reform Party candidate or tried to get the Reform Party nomination in 2000. Uh, and then you know, he realized that the, 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 the real power is in getting the Republican Party nomination. And then he became the president. So in addition to the kind of first past the post elections, which I think the fancy term for is the Duverger's law. I like it's the one word I can say in French. And if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, it's more of a tendency. Don't tell me. Uh, but the American presidency. Right. And then also, I think we should add there's this partisan duopoly out there. We have two parties and yeah. they don't want competitors. Yeah, and so they're going to rig the system. Well, they're going to set is, up laws that make yeah. it very hard for that, that third parties true. to form. and yeah. to. So I think all of these things together reinforce this two-party system that we have. Uh, but Lee, I, I guess one question I want to start off with is how, if you think about all of the different overlapping things that parties do uh, in order to win office, an organization, party organizations, party in the electorate, party in the government. How, say you form a third party, how is it that that third party or minor party can compete in each of these different spheres? Well, you would only see a third party form that would be a serious challenger if you changed the electoral rules so that they didn't punish third parties, which is to essentially create a system of proportional representation. And what I think you would see is you'd see the major parties splitting. Uh, I think there's a lot more diversity within the two parties than is represented in Congress or at the national level because so many issues are 
repressed from coming up. And so much of the of the party structure is is in Congress is very top-down agenda control. And so you would see probably in the Democratic Party, you'd see a split between the Bernie Sanders wing and the, the Joe Biden wing. In the Republican Party, I think you'd probably see a split into into three parties. And you know, the, the factions would say, look, I can I can do better as my own party because I think I'm being or, or or some faction within the party would say, I think I could do better as my own party because I think my views are not coming forward within the Democratic or the Republican Party. And you know, that's that's how you would see new parties emerge. Julia? I've got so I kind of have I, I kind of one overarching set of questions. So I'm just gonna like fire all my ammunition here and we'll see how this all right. goes. If I'm on the floor bleeding, you know, and, and I don't answer, you'll know. I, I really regret starting this violent metaphor now. But okay, so I'm gonna start by saying this was this is a really good read. It's very systematically organized and Lee you know you do a really nice job of taking on different counter arguments and laying out how this would play out in different institutions you've kind of taken the the typical arguments about American institutions and in a way turned them on their head and instead of saying our constitution isn't set up for x y or z you say okay let's just take constitutional constraints as a given and think about what we could change um and i really like all that and i'm planning to use this next time i teach my course on political parties and i think that um students will really respond well to it and that it lays out a lot of information in a way that is both accessible a word that we love to use in public scholarship but also but you know also rigorous and challenging and meaty so well thank you i really got a lot out of reading this um but my my concern as a you know a similar observer of American politics and party politics is 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 this again I'll, I'll start by commending you for writing what I'm not sure you meant to be a work of American political development but it kind of is one yeah. right where you kind of write you know here is here is how things have developed there's a critical point um, and I want to push you a little bit on the critical point there's a critical point past which we, you know, we cannot go back to what we had before. And so we need to deal with that. And we need to get out of the, we need to get off this path. We're in a, we're in a doom loop and we've got to have an intervention that gets us off this path. But you're very confident in the book that I think in the impact of institutions to structure and restructure political conflict. And I am less confident in that. So I guess this is sort of question number one. And this is like maybe question one through like 50 for me is how can we be sure that changing up the part the structure of party conflict will really you know will really produce better results and it is the structure of party conflict really agnostic to the content of that conflict which is some, sort of the way the book is written you know it doesn't i get that a book can only be about so many things but it like many works on this subject you sort of nod to the fact that the depth of partisan conflict in the contemporary arena is linked to civil rights and to the social change of the 60s and 70s, but don't really contend with what it means to be moderate. This is point number two for me is that moderation is really is kind of your holy grail in this book. And I'm I'm not sold on uh, that moderation even is one thing. You know, what what does it truly mean to be moderate in this in this context? And then from there, I had mentioned before that this set of party concerns or party debates that we are having as party scholars about whether parties are really just the formal organizations or whether they include 
a lot of different kinds of um, of coalition partners per what's called the UCLA school. And I will send James some things to put in the show notes about uh, what that is for our readers. But the, one of the key arguments of, of some of the scholars in the UCLA school, maybe most explicitly laid out by Seth Maskett in a book called The Inevitable Party, is that this kind of party, this kind of fluid coalition, is very adaptable. And the parties will kind of look at any system and find a way to, to work it. And that was something I kind of wondered about, is if there are... If there's this political incentive to to slam the other side, and if American American society is in a particular kind of state, American society is divided over these issues, won't powerful actors adapt to any kind of institutional change in order to exploit those divisions for political gain? So that's that's kind of the broad thrust of my of my reaction or the way that I would want to push you a little bit on the argument. All right, those are those are meaty questions. Um, lot to tackle here. So, I, I mean, the first first question is sort of can can you be sure that this will fix things? And you know, no, I, I can't because I, I haven't been to the future. Uh, you have. You I, wrote about the future in your book. You've been. I I, I, I know. <laughs> I mean, it was pure speculation. Uh, but like, yeah, I can't be sure. But here here's here's how I view things: is that I, I look at the moment that we're in and the structure of our politics and the incentives in our politics. And I can play that forward and it looks really bad to me because I don't, I don't see any, any resolution of this escalating doom loop within our political institutions, within our current two-party system and, and electoral system. What I see is increasingly high stakes, increasing hyper-partisanship and, and the breakdown of, of fairness that is essential for for a democracy, breakdown of legitimacy that is essential for a democracy. So then I say, well, okay, how could we potentially break that? Uh, and the conclusion that I come to is a lot of the conflict that we're experiencing is exacerbated by the two-party system. I, I don't doubt that there are real conflicts over culture, over identity, over race. The, these conflicts have been always at, at, at some sort of boil in American politics. But what I see is that the the way that the party system is set up and the way the elections are always so close, it turbocharges these conflicts. It, it raises the stakes. I think a transition to a multi-ethnic democracy is a really hard thing. But the way to make that even harder is to create a political system in which you have all the folks who believe in multiculturalism on one side and then all the folks who say, well, you know, America is a white Christian nation on the other side and force everybody who might be somewhat ambivalent or uncertain to pick one of those two sides and, you know, totally identify with that side. You know, I think the challenge is that you, you want to set up a political system that challenges that the us versus them way in which the human mind is prone to work. And you want to have a system that sets up a bunch of alternative frameworks so that things become actually more complex and not so black and white. I, I don't think most Americans are in an extreme camp on either side on these sort of who are we as a nation questions, but they get pushed into one side or the other to be part of a political team because most most American voters are not particularly ideological, but they are partisan. And so to know what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican, if the most salient aspect of that political identity is also a cultural and national identity, it 
it makes those conflicts much worse and much more much more difficult to navigate and much more zero sum than they need to be. I think we could find a deal on immigration if members of Congress went into a room and said, you know, we need to work something out. But members of Congress go into separate rooms and say, we want to use points to beat up the other side. And we want to make this issue more salient because it's an emotional issue. And we think it helps our side. And the less we resolve it, the more we can use it as a political issue, which I, I think ties into to points number two and three about, you know, the, the, the depth of this conflict and the way in which political actors uh, Use it. I think that the challenge is that the the Republican Party, as it stands, uh, you know, if it ran on on its economic program, it would be deeply unpopular. If it runs on a on a culture war program, it has a shot of of winning elections, uh, because America is more divided on the cultural issues now, uh, which means that the Republican Party has a strong incentive to emphasize those issues. Now, in a multi party system, I think you would see a hardcore ethno nationalist party, but that would be like a I think a about a 10% party. Like if you look at the polling numbers and the people who are like really hardcore ethno-nationalist, like that's maybe like 10, 10% of the electorate. A lot of Republicans have been pushed into that camp because they're Republicans and they just go along with Trump. But if there were other parties on the right that could offer different visions, I think you would see less of that hardcore ethno-nationalism defining the political conflict. I'm not saying that it would be easy, but we've gone through periods of political uh, change over civil rights uh, in the 60s. And, you know, it was certainly a period in which there was a lot of political violence, but American institutions didn't weren't threatened in the same way because the the conflict over civil rights cut across the two parties, that there was conflict within both of those parties because we had something like a four-party system. And if we had had the civil rights with the party alignment that we have now, I think we would have had a second civil war. So I, I want to jump in on this very quickly. Is it so much that the conflict cut across the parties, which I agree it did, or is the important aspect here the fact that the parties, regardless of what they believed in, and the members of the parties, the partisans, saw Congress as the place where they would try to win, where they would try to do things. And in the course of doing things, it gets messy. And you have, when you have a process and you have to try to pass a bill or a law, you end up having to compromise along the way. That is, a, it is inevitable. And I think one of the things today is that our system looks a lot more divided than it is, or the parties look more cohesive than they are precisely because they don't try to do anything in Congress. And when you mentioned the Republican Party, I mean, like, what is the Republican Party's economic platform? I mean, it seems to me that there's lots of different Republicans who believe in lots of different things on economic policy, some of which they happen to agree with Democrats on. Yeah, well, as, as demonstrated, the Republican policy's economic platform is very supply side tax cuts for the rich and limited social uh, spending, at least a, as enacted by their policies. Now, but maybe there are, there are certainly different members who have different different views on that. To your point about was it that the the conflict cut across parties, or was it that members of Congress actually acted and there was actual there was an actual arena for debate? And I think those two things are fundamentally linked. That in order for Congress to be an, an or I should say an actual transformative legislature as opposed to an arena in which there's debate and discussion and deliberation and you actually fight about things, it's a function of not having top-down agenda control. And top-down agenda control uh, is a product of parties 
that are relatively homogenous and have ceded their authority to leadership in order to win the next election. And in the in the 60s, Congress was very decentralized and there were multiple forum for, for civil rights activists to, to gain a foothold in Congress to force debate. So, but one of the things we learned from, you know, when you study parties and you read John Aldrich, a, a fabulous Duke scholar, and you read why parties, is that parties in government, parties in Congress, for instance, they form because members disagree on some things and they agree on other things and they want to win more of those other things over a longer period of time. And so they create an organization in some way inside Congress that allows them to keep the things that they disagree on off the agenda. And so there's a theoretically or logically, you could say the more parties are divided, but there's still a desire to hang together, the more they're going to defer to their leaders, the more they'll give their leaders more power to keep more issues off the agenda. And I think that's really where we are today with, you know, basically, Congress can't go anywhere near any kind of issue that is at the top of the public's agenda and their own agenda, precisely because the parties are very divided. And I think it would reveal a lot more division than we think. You know, but I think that that doesn't necessarily contradict your argument. It doesn't necessarily disprove it. It could be an argument in support of why the two-party system is fundamentally um, flawed that we have now. I'm not sure. I'm still I want to weigh in on this here. I just want to link this back to the to the part in the end where you uh, preview kind of what this party system looks like in 2030. And one of the things that you, you do say is that there is potentially immigration reform passed. And, and you just mentioned that this ethno-nationalist party is maybe is a, is a very small minority party, a 10% party. But where, where I'm not sure that you've laid out an argument that's internally consistent is a degree to which social cleavages and people's kind of political attitudes are fixed versus is how much they're responsive to the way that elites structure choices. So again, and I realize I keep asking you, how do you know? And like, we are speculating and we don't know. But what maybe do you think are the odds of the possibility that if you have an ethno-nationalist party, that it turns out that that party is able to make arguments that are appealing to more than 10% of the population. I mean, this is not this is not a hypothetical scenario. This has happened in several European countries where you have this fringy party and then it wins way more votes than anyone than anyone had had expected. So, so which which European countries do you have in mind there? Um. All of them. Um, that's my my Sarah Palin answer. I guess I'm thinking of the Netherlands in the early 2000s. I'm thinking of of Austria. Uh, I'm thinking of France. Um, I know you've recently written a book with a comparative component, and admittedly, I haven't. So maybe I have the details wrong in a way that you're going to tell me. Uh, yeah, but no, those are no. I, I mean, those are all mind. legitimate, and, and Austria is the is certainly the country where the the far right party has probably made the greatest gains. Austria is also the most rural of of those countries, so there's a stronger base for for that kind of party, which tends to do best in, in rural areas. I mean, in, in France and the Netherlands, you know, those, the, the as well as Germany and Sweden, there are far-right parties that have, have gained, but they've been kept out of power. I think, to, to me, I think we're already we're already looking at a, at a party being overtaken by ethno-nationalism. That, that is a majority party in the U.S., and that's the Republican Party. Under, under Trump's leadership, I think that party is becoming more and more of an ethno-nationalist party, and that's a majority party that had, can can get total control of the government, whereas in European countries, you know, yeah, there are far right parties that have have done well, but you know, they've basically plateaued out. They've been excluded from government, and you know, there there is an expression of frustration for a lot of folks with the way things are going, and yeah, that can be channeled into into demagoguery, but there is some expression of 
uh, you know, hey, we're being left behind and we don't like the way things are going and we, we ought to have a voice. And so I think it's it's challenging to navigate that in a, in a country in which the danger is that you have one side that says we have all the answers and, and whatever you think is just plain wrong. And then the other side feels like, well, you know, if that's if that's how things feel to you, then, you know, well, then you know, we can't let you get into power. And you've created that binary. And, you know, I understand I f- this feels like a challenge because, I mean, as a good liberal and a progressive, I, I, I do feel objectively that that views that are ethno-nationalist are wrong. But I'm trying to, to reconcile how do you how do you have a political system in which some people might feel that way without letting them take over one of the major parties in a two-party system. And, and I would say that that's one of the admirable things about this book. And, you know, as a conservative, I, 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 I value Lee's intellect highly. And but he does give that a lot of thought and it does come through in the book when he when when you read it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a great answer to this either. And I will also go on record saying I think I don't think it's partisan or super ideological to say that that ethno-nationalism is wrong. I would go so far as to say that it doesn't really have a place in a liberal discourse and I mean that in a liberal kind of liberal democracy way, advanced industrial democracy way, but obviously empirically it does in the sense that there are people who live in these places who have who have the right to vote and express themselves who are sympathetic to these views um who hold these views we don't exactly know how that how those views array and i think that it's i think it's a distinct position you've taken lee to say well if given that this exists how do we best both give it a, a kind of safety valve and also contain it from gaining too much power. So for me, the question, which I don't have an answer to is, is, you know, how, how much risk are we willing to take with certain kinds of strategies? But I want to take this in a slightly different direction. And ask you a little bit more about populism. I know we've recorded um, an episode on populism, and by the time our listeners are listening to this, I believe they will also be able to listen to that. And just to spoiler alert um, in that one, I I think the, the biggest populism skeptic, and Lee, maybe you were the most sympathetic to populist views, but you've got a, a little chunk on page 229 um, where, where you wow. suggest that. <laughs> Get the book out. Let's yeah. look it up, guys. Okay, uh, getting the book it. out. Um, yes, you can tell which of us is a full-time faculty member who is used to pulling out the page number. I mean, like, everybody turn. Um, so, okay. Marginalization feeds the sustaining populist myth of elite disdain and neglect. And, and once anti-system political sentiment grows big enough to take control of a major party, democracy becomes unstable because a two-party democracy requires two parties committed to the same basic rule of law. So I think this is a really interesting observation, but I did want to sort of again, really push you on the the logic of the idea that populism occurs because people are marginalized, in fact, because they're they're sort of buried in gigantic large party coalitions, as opposed to you you articulate a different version of this argument throughout the book that, that the real problem is government's not very responsive. Government's not getting things done or representing it's representing the needs of the society that it supposedly is su- supposed to represent and that's you know i don't i'm not sure what my question is but i wanted you to say more about your your argument that that smaller parties would help prevent anti-system populism um well i i, I realized that i didn't pick up on an important point that you uh raised before and i want to tie this 
back to this point. The, the point you made before w- was about political leadership and saying that if, if there is an opportunity for dem- demagoguery, political leaders might take that up. And I think that's exactly right. And and political leadership is really important. But one of the things that, that I note about what's happened to the Republican Party is that as Trump took over the Republican Party, there was really no other venue for conservatives who didn't share Donald Trump's ethno-nationalist view to, to have a space because the, the Republican Party really did it, didn't give them a space to do that, and they weren't about to become Democrats. And you know, I think there was a, a party loyalty that that overwhelmed the Republican Party. So uh, other voices like Jeff Flake were basically drowned out. But I think that the advantage of a multi-party system is that you can have other voices on the political right, or if the left becomes too extreme, the political left that can articulate a left or right vision, an alternative that is not extremist and that you know politics is a you know is a competition of of both ideas and identities and you know i think one of the reasons that we've become so polarized is because for for republicans who don't see themselves as democrats or i should say for americans who don't see themselves as democrats there's only one alternative and that's the republican party and so there are a lot of folks in Germany, in France, in, in Austria, who might see themselves as somewhat conservative, but are not ethno-nationalists. And they have another party that they can support without having to support an ethno-nationalist. In the US, there are a lot of people who are conservative, but don't like Trump's ethno-nationalism, but they also think that the Democrats are dangerous. And so they're forced to cast their vote for Trump without making that distinction, saying, I'm conservative, but I'm not Trump conservative. There's only one variety of conservatives. So I think allowing that space allows more space for people to, one, register conservative preferences that are not ethno-nationalist, which I do believe exist and are important. Uh, And two, it allows political leaders to articulate those visions without being drowned out. And I think if much depends on political leadership, you need the space for entrepreneurial political leaders to, to tap our better angels in contrast to those who would tap our, our, our more destructive angels or devils, perhaps. I have one. I just want to clarify my position on one thing and then I'll shut up for a bit. But um, I, it's not that I think that ethno-nationalism is is the driving force behind American conservatism. I take your point that and certainly, you know, we are um, here in the. Uh, on the podcast with with our conservative colleague, who's not an ethnonationalist to my knowledge, um, but you can speak for yourself, Jim. But it's that I think ethnonationalism infuses almost all of American conflict, and that there's, you know, there there are aspects of ethnonationalism that are part of a lot of different ideologies and parts of the political spectrum, and I certainly see think we see that playing out in the Democratic primary, which we can talk about in another episode. So it's not so much to me that I'm suspicious specifically of conservatives. I'm suspicious of of the kind of whole um, institutional enterprise. So we're running short on time here. I wish we could talk about this for the next three days. I think we have a lot to cover and I would encourage our listeners to to buy the book, read the book and, and, and decide for yourselves what, what you think. But Julia, did Lee change your mind? Did he persuade you? So reading this book made me more sympathetic to this argument than I was in the beginning. And it made me think of of aspects of it that I hadn't thought about before. Lee, did uh, Julia, uh, 
that our questions are deeply thoughtful and insightful and probing questions. <laughs> did they lead you to question everything and decide that it was all just you know, a waste of time and you shouldn't have written the book? Well, out of confirmation bias <laughs> and self-identity per, uh, protection, I, I, I have to say no. So I'll say for myself that I like this book a lot. Uh, there's a lot in it uh, that, I, that I find very appealing. Uh, one, I think that Lee's emphasis on conflict and how central it is to politics is absolutely, absolutely necessary to repeat over and over again. Uh, Lee believes deeply in political parties and that they are vital to making the system work. I think that is also true. And he also emphasizes a shift in how uh, partisans view each other and that this shift is incompatible with politics uh, and in Congress, especially. And I think Lee's emphasis on the need to think institutionally, or as uh, Hugh Heckler would say, from the inside out, I think is very important when we're trying to understand what happens inside Congress or any of our institutions. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of the members and try to understand the incentives that they face, the, the pressures, the reality, all of that. But I will say I'm not yet sold. I'm not yet convinced that more parties are going to solve the problems that we face today. I agree on the problems, but they seem to be bipartisan. And I think there's a deeper problem than that's underlying Lee's book here. And it's the unwillingness to engage in, to participate in, and to do politics. And that's a mindset that we have when we look at Congress as a factory. And I've talked about this. We see politics as a means to an end. And when you see politics like that, you bargaining, the, the give and take, the, uh, everything becomes, it becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible. And so because you can't have rules, you can't have the ability to forgive your opponents when you lose and to move on. Like, those things are absolutely necessary. And so because of that, I'm not sure more parties are going to change things in America if their members still have that same mindset. I guess that's where I keep coming back to. But again, I, it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it, especially for people who are suspicious of the argument. I think they should read it, challenge themselves, and decide what they think. Uh, but with that, I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, Lee, you want to you have the last word here? Well, I couldn't ask for, for two better questioners than you guys. So thank you. Well, thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Sestrano, a policy analyst with the Political Reform Program at New America, sitting in for Elena Soros today. And it's time for your favorite segment, Two Truths and a Lie. As a reminder about the rules, I'm going to try to stump you with Two Truths and a Lie. Follow-up questions are not allowed. And don't shout out the answer if you immediately know it while I'm reading, because I know that you know a lot about these topics. All right, so... As a little summary, a multi-party democracy opens up the potential for more voters' perspectives to be formally represented in politics, um, but that also includes some perspectives that are not so serious. I'm going to read you three different examples of joke parties in other countries, two of which are true. Case A, Church of the Militant Elvis Party, a party in the UK founded in 2001 to address issues like global warming and overthrowing the corporate capitalist state which turned Elvis, a man of immense talent, into a fat media joke. Case B, Sweet Giraffe Party of Germany, which advocated for what they called long-term thinking above the trees of short-sightedness for their pet issue, the country's decrease of innovative candy companies. Case C, the McGillicuddy Serious Party of New Zealand, whose defense policy was to actually wipe New Zealand off the map. Hmm. 
Wow. Those are some good parties. <laughs> I mean, maybe Lee's on to something because I kind of am intrigued by some of these. See, it's a font for creativity. I mean, wow. So, I, you know, I think New Zealanders would not want to w- wipe themselves off the face of the map, presumably. But, but it's so improbable. It's, I, where is New I, It's so far I, away. I think it's the Elvis party is the, is the fake one. But he did sell out. I mean, it's a legitimate yeah. concern, and it is capitalism that drove him to sell out, right? I mean, what do you think, Julia? I think I think it's C. I think it's a New Zealand party. I've, I'm going to have to go with C. I mean, the giraffe thing is just too brilliant. I mean, the idea right. of a giraffe being able to see far ahead of what's coming, and you have a party composed of people or comprised of people, I should say, of mm-hmm. giraffes looking ahead to the future. It's just too too poetic to to be false. So I'm going to go C. I'm going A. Nice. I'm going C. Okay. Let's see what the answer is. Okay, this is amazing. The answer is actually B. No. What? Yes. No. What? We've been collectively stumped. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, Look there you go. Us. We learned something every day. Also, this means they're like all, you know, we can call dibs on the giraffe party. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.